Well, church, if you could open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, we will continue our study of this gospel. And as you do so, I just, the most brief thank you I want to extend from my family to all the support in all the various ways. Um, At this point, it has come um, through the gifts, it has come through uh, the work of your hands, and most importantly, through your prayers. And so, again, the most brief thank you, but I didn't want that to go unsaid this morning. We're in Mark chapter 4, and we are in verse 35. Jesus has been teaching, and now we move into him moving. And so he says this in verse 35. He says, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning. We'll read here in a moment that you are capable to calm storms. That the various meteorological variables that come together to create wind are by your design. That the very molecules of air themselves were spoke into existence and have been kept by your providential hand. You are able to create these things, move these things, and stop these things. Let us have the faith to understand that you can calm the storms in our hearts and our minds even this morning. I pray that you do that for our benefit and for our peace, but particularly for these next few moments so that we can have supple hearts that are ready to receive from your spirit what we are to receive through your inspired word. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Can you stop a storm? That's right. (laughs) No, you can't. Can you stop a wave? Can you make, as we talked about last week, can you make a tree grow? Do you have power over nature? Can you stop wind coming in from a building? Can you stop air from leaving a building? We don't have that ability. For all of the things that we can do, we don't have a lot of control over the natural world. We can't stop the sun from shining, no matter what any climate alarmists might have you believe. Nor can we keep, as we would all like to do in a matter of months, the snow from landing on our driveways or our vehicles or our roofs. It's impossible. We can't make it happen. With the amount of prowess that man has shown over the natural world, the ability to tame creatures, the ability to harness the natural resources that we have, there is still so much to which we are powerless to control. The sun's rays 
make us cover up in the summertime, and the cold of the winter makes us cover up in the wintertime. Even our own bodies are unable to cope with the extremes of the weather that we find ourselves in. So we are much less able to walk out to the ocean this morning and tell a wave to stop. And we are much less unable, if a storm were to kick up, to scream into the gale, quit it, and it care one bit. But Christ can do that. Christ does that. And we're going to read about him accomplishing that this morning and what that means. And so this is a well-known story. The other gospel writers talk about it, but in, as is often the case in Mark, we usually get a, a shorter version of it. But today, this story, it's actually an expanded version with some very personal details. So let's go through it, and then we'll make application. So look at verse 35. Once again, they are leaving from these teachings. Jesus has just finished up with a, a teaching on parables, agricultural parables, talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven. And it says in verse 35, And on that day when evening came, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side, of course, talking about the sea. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So this idea of, of the, him just saying, Let's get up and go, leaving the crowd, they were in the middle of this. This is not the point of the message, but we, we see a couple things about Jesus and the apostles here. First and foremost, that Jesus doesn't say, well, let me make sure I spend all of my energy and all of my time making sure I deal with every need. They leave in what seems to be in the urgency of their, their getting up and going, seems to be in the middle of something. This doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't compassionate. We get that language all over the place. It just means that Jesus was human. Jesus needed rest, and we'll see that in a second because he's going to go to bed right away. It's just important to understand that Christ in the incarnation, on one hand, is human, which is important to remember. It's necessary to understand that Christ is human. He was superhuman in the sense that he was also truly God, but in his humanity, he was also subject to things that we need, like rest. And I think it's important. It's important to remember that. It's important to remember that because sometimes, and as we'll talk about here in a minute, we sometimes put Christ as God of the big things, God of the 911, God of the storm, God of the emergency. But we have a few new mothers here in the, in, in, in the, the room. And so rest sometimes is that 911. Rest is sometimes that emergency. So when we pray, when we come to Christ with our desire for a few moments of rest, as our one mediator, he hears that and doesn't receive that request as some sort of abstract thing going on with his creation, but it is something that Christ, as truly man, in a truly glorified body, understands. Christ needing to sleep ministers to us. Something as simple as that. But then also, it shows that as, as humans, we need rest. As, as Christ had a, a, a limit in his physical capacities. And that doesn't diminish his deity whatsoever. It simply reinforces that in our, in our created order, and we can go back to as we talked about creation and the creation of man, that there are, there are limits to what we can do. And Christ needed sleep as well. But they get in this boat to go across the Sea of Galilee. And uh, what kind of boat was this? 
you know, I don't give a lot of historical details as it relates to these little tidbits, but it's interesting. Only about a, a generation ago in the 80s, they found a boat buried in the mud. It had been preserved. And this boat was about 26 feet long, seven feet wide, and four feet high. So it was basically the dimensions of a canoe, only about two and a half times larger than the normal canoe that you'd be used to. So a little bit sturdy, but would you like to be out in the middle of a lake in a canoe when a storm came up? I think the answer is no. But this is the kind of boat that they were in. Oftentimes we have our flannel graph imagery of what boats in the Sea of Galilee for Jesus' apostles looked like, but this is basically what the boat looked like, was a big, wide-bottom canoe, only covered at the stern and covered at the helm with, so that you could store things, or if you wanted to, you could take a nap. And so this is the setting of, of, of the beginning of the story in verse 35 and 36. We look in verse 37, though, and it says, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. Again, it's a relatively shallow boat. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. And they got him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, Again, the Sea of Galilee was not a large sea, but one other thing that's remarkable, and, and I would love to visit the Holy Land someday simply for the, the contextual value that you get, because something I've heard from uh, all of my friends in ministry who have gone to visit is getting to see the topography and how close things are, but at the same time how extreme things are, really gives them a fresh perspective on what they were going through as they traveled in the Gospels and what they traveled in the New Testament. The battles, the, the, the teaching, the object lessons that Christ gave really comes to life. But one of the things that we, we know about this area is that it goes from 700 feet below sea level at the Sea of Galilee to literally 8,000-foot mountains in a matter of miles. So it's an extreme topography. And so this east wind that would come up and it would come across the Sea of Galilee and it would create extreme storms and it would even create water spouts on this relatively small sea. It was an extreme situation that they were dealing with then. It's an extreme situation that they still deal with today. They haven't, you know, torn down the mountains and they haven't created some sort of barrier for the wind. So they still have, and the fishermen and the people in this, in this area, the tourists, still deal with these extreme conditions, the kind of conditions that could certainly sink a small fishing vessel. But that's really not the point. The point is not the nature of the windstorm. The point is that it was a storm that was causing the disciples to question the fact that Christ was sleeping. They asked him this question, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, why did they ask Jesus this question? Why do they ask Jesus if, they, if, if he cares if they're perishing or not? Did they expect him at this point in his ministry, in this point in their faith, in this point of knowing Christ, did they expect him to wake up and do what we know he's going to do? Or was he simply showing that he really didn't care about what was going on in their minds? So once, once again, did they expect him to get up and still the storm or were they simply saying, hey, we're all panicking. Why aren't you panicking too? I think this is an important question to, to raise. Because 
I don't believe, and the, the, the text really bears this out, that they believed that Jesus could calm the storm. Not to spoil the story, but they, in verse 1, in 41, they're, they're, they're shocked that this happened. They're shocked that he stilled the storm. So by them asking this question, they're basically saying, Jesus, we know you kind of have a, a handle on things. We're all freaking out, and you're sleeping. They didn't know what Jesus could do. They didn't know that Jesus could fix this. But all they knew was that they wanted Jesus to get on their wavelength. They wanted Jesus to kind of adapt to them. They wanted Jesus to do what they felt like they, that he needed to do to show, to demonstrate that he cared as much as they did. They were frantic. Jesus was calm. In fact, he was so calm, he was peacefully sleeping. And that made them uneasy. Sometimes we can be in that same boat, pun intended. We can be in that same situation. You know, God, don't you know how severe the consequences of this happening are? Don't you know the stakes? Don't you know the situation that I find myself in? Don't you understand how much I want this thing to happen or I don't want that thing to happen? We say that because we don't truly have a grasp on God's perspective of all circumstances. We believe it. We might know it academically. We might confess it in our creeds and our catechisms. But when it comes down to it, practically, we're running around in the boat trying to shovel out as much water as we can with our hands, looking and saying, why aren't you doing the same thing, God? This is our natural human response because we're used to interacting with people. And if there's somebody who looks like he's not doing their part or looks like not, he's not adequately freaking out about the situation, we think, what's wrong with this person? I'm freaking out. Why don't they freak out? I'm panicking. Why aren't they panicking? And so we say, I'm panicking. Why isn't God responding to my panic in an appropriate level today? So they ask this question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There's so much that we could say about that. It's kind of the, the audacity of them unknowingly who they're asking that do they do not, if he doesn't care that they're perishing. But then also, who, even what they know about him, the compassion that, they, that he has shown them up to this point, that they would ask this. It shows the irrationality of man to know that, this, that Christ has only ever and always been loving, caring, compassionate about them. And to think that in this dire situation that he is completely checked out. So in as much as we can want God to respond in kind with our level of panic or anxiety or worry, we can also want God to respond in a way or assume the worst of God. God, do you not care about this situation? losing sight of all of the things that he's done for us in the past. This is the nature of our short-sightedness. This is a nature of our finitude. This is a nature of us being small. This is a nature of us being creatures. And we have to remember that, that this is an uphill battle that we fight against. 
We fight against the flesh. We fight against our hearts. We fight against our minds. But ultimately, all of these fights are fights against our just lack of appreciation for the fact that we are creatures and he is a creator. Continuing on in verse 39. And he, Jesus, woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. We've heard this story countless times, especially if you've grown up in church. We've heard this story countless times, but consider what it's saying. Jesus was asleep. He woke up. He talked to the storm, and the storm stopped. I mean, we can't take that for granted, because once again, as I said before, we can't do that. The, the valedictorian at an Ivy League school can't do that. The best meteorologist can't do that. He can give you a 50-50 chance if, he can, if, it, if it will or won't stop, and that's about as good as he can get. The engineers at NASA can't do that. Elon Musk can't do that. No one can do it. But Christ, 2,000 years ago, did it. We can't take that for granted. But at the same time, we shouldn't be shocked if we know who Jesus is. Because Jesus does what God does, one of those things being controlling nature. Christ controls nature. Because God controls nature. Christ is God. This is simply illustrating the fact that Christ is the second person of the Trinity, that Christ is Yahweh. We read earlier this morning from our opening prayer from Psalm 107, and one of the things that we read was, was from the later, latter part of that psalm. It says, then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble. See this parallel with what was happening with the apostles. Yeah, then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. What did he do? He caused the storm to stand still so that its waves were hushed. Jesus does what Yahweh does, because Jesus is Yahweh. This is something that we can't lose sight of. This is Mark's clear indication of who Jesus is. This is Mark telling us that Christ is God. As I've said countless times, as we've gone through the, the, the Gospels, both John, the Gospel of John and now the Gospel of Mark, so many skeptics, so many people who are cynical about the faith will say, show me in here where Jesus says, I am God. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus does say that, but more frequently what we see is Jesus doing the things that only God does. Jesus doing the things that the people around him that the original audience in the first century of the Gospels, and that us today, when we read these things and we see these things happening, we say, only God does this stuff, and Jesus is doing this stuff. And we have enough logic and reason to put those two pieces together and say, here is Jesus, not just saying he's God, but doing the things that God does. This Old Testament connection with what this is, the very idea of stilling the, stilling the storm. But it's more than that. We've already, Mark's gospel, this is just under the surface, the idea of kind of, of, of demonic uh, oppression. 
the idea of the opposition of evil. We've talked about this a few weeks ago and how in, in our sterilized culture and society, we really push this to the margins. And we know maybe a, a friend or an uncle or somebody who goes to a church that was really kind of crazy about these things. And, and although we don't want to swing to that extreme, we also don't want to push the idea of, of evil and spiritual warfare and the demonic to the margins. And it's interesting the language that Mark uses says he woke up and rebuked the wind. Now, is the wind good, bad, or neutral? It's wind, for goodness sake, right? The wind is a, a really a neutral thing. We, we, we don't, you know, we can't prosecute the wind. The wind is a neutral thing, but the language that is used here is that fact that Jesus rebuked the wind. And actually, the language in the Greek here for Jesus' interaction with nature very much parallels his interaction with demonic forces in the Gospel of Mark. So it's not explicit that what was happening here was some sort of oppression. But I think at, at the deepest level, it's a reminder that any opposition, that, that, that the fall was a result of sin, and so there isn't true neutrality in anything, that there may very well be opposition in something like a storm for the Messiah and his apostles, because Christ confronts it head on in this manner. But once he does, there's not a conflict, there's no wrestling, there's no arguing, there's no going back and forth, there's no repeating himself. It says, and the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. We could really explore this a lot, but there's a lot of parallels with a, another Bible story here. There's a lot of parallels with, the, with Jonah's plight in those first few chapters of the book of Jonah. And we could really talk about this quite a bit, but you have the idea of Jonah, Jesus being asleep and Jonah being asleep. The, um, the, the, the fishermen in Jonah's boat saying, we are perishing, the apostles saying, we are perishing. Jonah gets dumped in the lake the lake becomes perfectly calm. Jesus says, silence, be still. And the text says that it became perfectly calm. The language actually lines up, particularly if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and what we have here in, in the Greek New Testament. We don't want to go into too, too much detail, but I think what you do see here is not only Christ being presented as Yahweh, as God, but also Christ being presented as the better prophet. Remember, he's just come off on the, the heels of teaching of showing the things of the kingdom of God. He has been doing prophetic things. Again, when we think of prophetic things, we often think about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to be the, the, the nature of the outcome of this event. That is only a small part of the prophetic mission. The primary, primary aspect of the prophetic mission is simply to communicate the things of God to the people of God, either for blessing or for judgment. And that's what Christ has been doing as he's been giving parables, as he's been giving teaching. He is not teaching in some new way. He is simply continuing the kind of thing that God had been doing through lesser vessels, the prophets, for thousands of years. Now he is doing, as the book of, of Hebrews says, is doing it perfectly through his son. And so we have Christ presented as God, but we also have Christ presented as the better prophet I think explicitly in the way that this story is framed in a way to kind of show that Christ is a foil, Christ is a fulfillment of what Jonah was able to do imperfectly. And so we see that all of that in verse 39, but we continue on two more verses in this text. It says in verse 40, and he said to them, why are you so cowardly? 
do you still have no faith? So Jesus gets right to the heart of it. What was their problem? They didn't have faith, and they were cowardly. They were cowardly because they had no faith. Fear and faith go hand in hand. Faith is the solution to fear. Faith is the cure for being afraid. What were they afraid of? Well, they were cowardly because of the storm. Do you still have no faith? Again, I think it's important to ask the question here, and maybe not even necessarily answer it this morning, but what were they supposed to have faith in? Were they supposed to have faith that Jesus was going to wake up and still the storm? Or was Jesus saying, you didn't even have faith that God was going to be able to protect you? I think the second is more likely. I don't think that they understood who Jesus was at this point. I think it would have been presumptuous for them to say, Jesus is going to just take care of this. But it would not have been presumptuous. And it would not have been out of line with everything that Jesus had been teaching them, even only what we have in the Gospel of Mark, for Jesus to be disappointed in their lack of faith in God's providential hand over them in that moment. So again, I don't think that it's necessarily that we need to have faith that things are going to happen in the precise way that we think they ought to happen, but that God is going to take care of it. God is going to handle it. Just a couple of weeks ago, downstairs in children's church, or in Sunday school, we had the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and the binding of Isaac and Isaac being taken up to the altar. What we learn about later in the, in the New Testament is that Abraham's faith was such that he believed that God was going to take care of the situation even to the point of raising Isaac from the dead. That was, God, that was Abraham's faith. That was the faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was the nature of Abraham's faith. That he didn't know how it was going to happen, but he knew God was going to take care of it. And I think that is the accusation. Not the accusation. It is the charges rightly leveled by Christ to the apostles in this situation. Why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? In the, the, the waning chapters of Deuteronomy, as Moses is, is uh, literally dying, um, it says, And Yahweh is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. We'll talk about fear again here in a moment as we kind of apply this and wrap this up, but having our eyes firmly set on God being afraid is a contradictory emotion. And we'll talk about fear and the different kinds of fear in a second because we're actually going to see a good fear in verse 41 here. But to be truly afraid of circumstances is completely perpendicular to being completely trusting in God. Do not fear or be dismayed. We'll flesh that out because that might seem like a, an awkward place to be. And it's, it might seem like it's asking us to not be human. It might, be, it might look like initially like God is asking us to do something that is contradictory to the way he's created us. But we'll, we'll answer that here in a minute. If I don't do it, grab me after the sermon and I'll, I'll try to fix it. But we see in verse 40 that they're accused of being cowardly, of fearful, because they have no faith. Verse 41, and they became very afraid and were saying to one another, 
Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We begin to see the resolution of this situation. We begin to see the resolution of this story, of, this, of the, the, the dynamics that are present in this short narrative. Because they were afraid of the storm. It says that, um, that they were... Um, they, they thought they were perishing, and Jesus accused them of being cowardly. But the only time that we see here in this text that they're being actually afraid, and again, Mark is probably getting this firsthand from Peter, was after Christ rebuked the storm and then rebuked them. This is when they are very afraid because they understand something. They are actually witnessing in a sense, what Jesus says when he says, I will show you the one to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. This is, they're now coming in contact with the reality that Jesus has a lot more going on than they had bargained for or assumed or even believed. And so consequently, they are being brought, they are being forced because they're in a boat to understand that their fear of the storm has to be less than their fear of the Messiah. And notice, there's two types of fear here. There's the fear that's like being scared of, and there's the fear that is being in awe of and reverence to. I've used this example before, but we're talking about water, so why not do it again? Is it okay to be afraid of water? I wouldn't say it's okay to be afraid of water. It's okay to have a healthy fear of water. We can drown in water. We can get, water can damage our stuff. Water can do a lot of bad things. However, it doesn't mean that we need to be afraid of water, stay 10 feet away, making sure that we have life jackets and water wings and a snorkel and a backup scuba gear on at all times, anytime we're driving over a bridge or walking on the perimeter of a lake. That's not healthy. That's not healthy, okay? But, so there's two different types of fear. That is the bad kind of fear. But the good kind of fear is, let's make sure we know how to swim. Let's make sure we know for where it goes from being shallow to where it's deep. Let's make sure that we know when we dive in what the depth is. That's a good kind of fear. But those things are both within the same you know, category, but they're different sides of the spectrum of understanding fear. Jesus said it was cowardly of them to fear the storm. Jesus says, but Scripture insinuates that their fear of Christ is them moving in the right direction because they're beginning to understand his power and what he is and who he is. So this is this text, verses 35 through 41, Mark's account of the calming of the storm. But it teaches us three things, three things of application. First, I know Jesus is in control. I know Jesus is in control. This is what we get from this, that Jesus is in control, that God is sovereign over his entire creation. God is sovereign over the big things, and God is sovereign over the little things. God is sovereign over the spiritual things, but God is also sovereign over the physical things. This is something we've seen numerous times. God is not a God who only forgives. God is a God who heals. He touches what is something that we cannot see, and he touches something that we can see, but that we can't necessarily do on our own. 
God is sovereign over his entire creation. He is sovereign over creation and sovereign over redemption, but he's also sovereign over kings and he is sovereign over sparrows. Not a one drops out of the sky without him knowing. He is in control of all of these things. There is not one thing in this world, there is not a molecule that is stray from God's providential awareness. I have boxes in my house. Lots of boxes. I don't know where things are. There's a very good chance I will lose something. There's a very good chance today if you ask me for something, I'm not going to be able to find it. I am limited in my ability to locate things. I actually even footnote quotes in my sermon notes because if someone asked me, who said that? What book was it in? Even if I read it two days ago, I'd be very hard-pressed to go find it for you on Monday. We are limited in our ability to grasp things and understand things that are even within our, our, our frame of vision. And so it's hard for us to comprehend that there is a God who is in control of the things that are in front of him and behind him. The things that we lose, God knows exactly where they are. I know Jesus is in control of the physical, but also the spiritual and because of, and we, we know that he's in control and that his intentions and his infections are, are, are properly, uh, are, are ordered in a, a, a way that is pleasing to us and pleasing to him for those who are in covenant with him. His loving kindness is the outworking of his control of those for whom his son died. So his control over all things is not simply a mechanical control, a theistic control, a blind watchmaker kind of control. For those who are his, those for whom Christ died, those who by faith or by grace through faith have come to a loving relationship with him, God has that covenant loving kindness through Christ for his people. So he is in control of your physical body, but he's in control of that which will persist long after your physical body fails. He holds you in his hands. I know Jesus is in control. Secondly, I don't have to be afraid. So I mentioned this earlier. Does this mean that we can't be scared of stuff? I'll be very, very honest with you. A few nights ago, I was actually staying at Joy and Netu's house, and I had a dream that there was coyotes out in the backyard. I'm not afraid of coyotes. I'm a man. I'm okay. But as that dream was happening, my dog woke up, and I had to go take the dog to go to the bathroom. And I realized, I have to go outside. I just saw coyotes out there. Now, I made it. Ember made it. I encouraged him to go, mind you. We made it. Now, does that mean that was sinful? Was I sinning in saying, something with sharp teeth in the dark could bite me? Is that a sin? A, a much more proximate analogy. This intersection right here, all right? If coyotes aren't your thing, then this intersection might be. Is it wrong to say, oh my goodness, I got to pull out. I got to do it. I got to go across. We get the phone call from the doctor. 
We get the bill from the utility company. We find ourselves in a situation where we cannot locate one, two, three, where's the fourth head of our kids? Is it sinful for that not to immediately come up in our stomach? I'll say this. It's not sinful, but it's the result of sin. Not our, necessarily our sin, but the result of a fallen world where bad things happen. But it itself is not sinful. God has created us to be spatially aware of what is around us and to know there's, uh, there, there, there's places we should go and places we ought not go, places that are safe and places that are unsafe, situations that we ought to get ourselves and our children and our families and our loved ones out of. Things might scare you, and that's okay, but they ought not cause you to live in fear. So once again, there's a difference between I really don't want to run across a coyote in the middle of the night and I'm moving to the city because I don't want to be around coyotes. That's a big difference. And there's more coyotes in the city than there is in the country. More trash in the city. Anyway, this is the difference. Is the fear something that we can control or is the fear controlling us? If Jesus is in control and God has anchored me in Christ, if we are tethered to Christ by his work and by God's sovereign plan, electing us and uniting us by his work, not by our work to his son, I might be afraid, but I don't have to live in fear. If I am in Christ, I might be afraid, but I don't have to live in fear. This is of things, of the bee, of the tetanus shot, of whatever, of people, my neighbor, Hamas, whatever it might be, or events, the tax bill coming, war in the Middle East. Things, people, and events might frighten us, but we cannot allow them to make us live in fear because then what do we have to offer our friends and our neighbors and our community and the world? We say, Jesus is really good, but you're going to kind of just be as scared as you were before. Jesus is really good, but you know, I mean, we're, we're out here just kind of dealing with this in, in the same way you are, only we have a, an hour of calm on Sunday morning where we come and we be scared together. There's been dangerous eschatologies over the last few generations that have really conditioned people to live in fear. Find that in the New Testament. Find that in the Old Testament. Find that in the Bible where God desires you to be scared of the newspaper. God desires you to be scared of wars and rumors of wars. God desires you to be scared of blood moons and constellations and things like that. Find me the chapter. Find me the verse. But I'm very confident it doesn't exist. We are commanded to show fear to whom fear is due. Not the one that can hurt body, but the one who can cast soul into hell. I know Jesus is in control. I don't have to be afraid. But thirdly, I need to pray for faith. This is how this happens. It doesn't happen by gritting your teeth. It doesn't happen by exposure therapy. It doesn't happen by just dealing with it. The proper biblical response is what Christ tells his apostles to do in verse 40. It's not, why are you so cowardly? Man up. You might have to man up. Why are you so cowardly? Be an adult. You might need to be an adult. 
But the way that we do that is not in our own power or something that a self-help book or something that a talking head on the TV tells us what to do. Why are you so cowardly? The solution is because we have to have more faith. I know Jesus is in control. I don't have to be afraid. I need to pray for faith. But Jesus is in control and fearful things will come. So these are two, this is, here's our nice little logical lesson for this morning, right? If Jesus is in control, but we know that in this present aeon, fearful things will come, what needs to change? Does Jesus need to change? Does he need to be in more in control? Does this world need to change? It does need to change, but can we change it? What needs to change is me. What needs to change is us. If there's things that are fearful, causing us to be fearful, but Christ is in control, the, the change is us. We need to change. Faith overcomes fear, but that faith needs to be rightly ordered. As we illustrated earlier, it needs to be in the right kind of thing. A rickety stool will not support your weight, but a well-welded chair will. And Christ is the most sure foundation on which we can put our whole entire weight. Faith overcomes fear, but that faith must be in the right thing. It must be in the one true God and his Messiah in the indwelling Holy Spirit that he gives everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. I know Jesus is in control. I don't have to be afraid, but I need to pray for faith. This is our charge. This is our opportunity. This, this gives us practical things to deal with. This is the kind of thing that the most dire circumstances, difficult things that you, church, that I know you are dealing with, this is the pathway, a pathway through it. But this is also when we sit down with our child and we talk about turning the lights off the way that we walk through it. Isn't it a blessing how God gives his children exactly what they need and the parent, knowing what they just endured and what they are still enduring, may have that conversation with their child, knowing that we are walking the same pathway in Christ to become more conformed to the image of, his, of him. I'll leave it with, with this before we go to the Lord's Supper. You know, one of the things that we talk about, particularly when we talk about the Lord's Supper, is this anticipation of coming to this, this great wedding feast of the Lamb, this banquet in, in which things are brought to, to reconciliation, things are brought to completion, the fulfillment of, of what Christ has started is realized. In this miracle, this miracle of, of, of control over nature, we actually see a glimpse, a glimmer of that anticipation, reconciliation of all things. Something that spans in, in, in the entirety of redemptive history from gen, the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is this similar theme. The, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. And so the ocean, the sea, the water was always a scary thing for them. You see this in a few ways. You see this in, in, in their God, Yahweh, being able to split the, Red sea, split the Red Sea, turn the Nile to blood. You're able to see him conquer the foes that are coming from, this, from the, the ocean, the ocean-faring people. You see this numerous places in the Old Testament. But you almost see it most starkly in a verse that we talked about a few months ago when we're going through Genesis. 
In Genesis 1-2, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. There's this idea of chaos, this idea of disorderliness, this idea of just depth and dark. And hopefully, every one of us, no matter how much we love the ocean, no matter how much we enjoy night swimming, has a tinge of fear when we think about a formless, void, dark depth that God brought into order. But Revelation 21 gives us a totally different picture. So again, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we anticipate the new, the new creation, as we anticipate the feast of the Supper of the Lamb, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now what might be cause for fear and trepidation for beach lovers and for those who enjoy their time at the lake, uh, let me give you some reassurance. Water is good, but the, that bad kind of fear and that danger that that original audience would have associated with water, that is what this text is getting at. That is what, what, what is being communicated. There's no danger. There's no leviathan. There's no, wind, there's, there's, there's no sharkia storm coming from the east that is going to tip over your fishing vessel. There is no marauding armies that are coming from the coast. None of these things are going to be there because Christ in his consummation of all things is going to take away that which he originally whipped into order, that which he demonstrated in the incarnation that he could calm and still. And just like he's able to do that in the new creation, he's able to do that for everything that troubles you, every storm in your heart, every storm in your mind, if we look to him in faith. We know Jesus is in control. We know we don't have to be afraid. We know that we need to pray for faith. So as John and the musicians come up, and as they're playing, I'll ask you to come and receive the elements and bring them back for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray for faith. Lord, we believe that this supper is an opportunity to be nourished by your presence. In the words of the reformers and those who would, with, with which we align in our convictions of the supper, you are present with us as we take the supper in faith. And so, Lord, we ask for faith. Faith that this simple cracker and this little cup of wine, although they do not transform into your literal body, body and blood, they are also not just something we do because we're told to do it, but that there's a middle way, a right way, an ordered way that fulfills the expectation of your son as he instituted this supper that he is with us even until the end of the age. And so, Lord, his presence is just as much here as it was with the apostles in the boat, although not physically, spiritually. And so, Lord, we pray that you will guide us through storms, storms of nature, storms of culture, storms of relationship, and even the storms that rage inside of us. And so, Lord, let this supper, let these simple elements be opportunities for us to draw closer to you in faith, knowing you are in control, 
knowing we have nothing to fear besides you, and knowing that you will give us faith if we ask for it. We ask all this in the name of your Son.